So for my childhood, my mother sadly was an alcoholic. So I really didn't have a mother. She kept us safe, I would say, but she was British, she was removed, distant, had married at 18, didn't really know herself that well, and then was hit with this. She married a man that she didn't really know was going to be famous, of course. Even though he was related to the Roosevelts, she arrived in this country at 18. And the first night out, she told me she sat next to Felix Frankfurter, the Supreme Court Justice, at a dinner party. Hello, you are listening to the Late Bloomer Living podcast, where we are reimagining and redefining what it means to be in midlife, where we are gathering energy, momentum, and excitement for our next chapter via candid conversations with other midlifers about their own pivots, pitfalls, and triumphs. I'm Yvonne Marchese, your host, and I'm so happy you're here. (sighs) Family. (laughs) It's a complicated word, isn't it? It's often romanticized in movies, songs, and commercials, and perhaps leaves us all feeling like our family is lacking in comparison. And here we are in the month of November. In America, that means we will soon be sitting down to dinner with our families for Thanksgiving dinner, and all the complexities of our families will suddenly be right in front of us. It can be challenging. And one of the most challenging relationships, perhaps, is the mother-daughter relationship. Today, I am so happy to bring you a story of a mother and daughter that leads to healing and forgiveness. Elizabeth Winthrop Alsup is the award-winning author of over 50 works of fiction for adults and children under the pen name Elizabeth Winthrop. Her latest book is titled Daughter of Spies, Wartime Secrets, Family Lies. Looking back on her life as her mother was slowly slipping away from her and into the mists of dementia, she's written a memoir for the first time. I sat down with her to talk about what it was like to write a memoir, to look deeply at her mother, and the events that made her who she was. I think we should just dive right in. So without further ado, here's Elizabeth Winthrop Alsop. Let's go. Hey, Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with me today. I'm delighted to be here. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Oh my, yeah. Wow, you have a whole career behind you of novels. Correct. Yes. Right. Fiction for children and adults. Picture books to 90-year-olds. Wow. But all fiction. Wow. That's so, so cool. That's a wide swath of, of work. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. It's, Just, I, before I, we uh, get into your story, do you have yeah. a favorite format? Like from from picture book to... I, I like to be working on more than one thing at once, mm. so that if I'm writing a middle grade fantasy novel, which I was just doing, I'm also trying to write a picture book at the same time, because it draws from very different places. Um, picture books are very close to poetry. You have to get a lot said in a very short time. And often a picture book is, it's always 32 pages in print, but it might be two pages in um, manuscript form. 
So it's very different from writing a deeply, you know, deep researched character driven novel. So I like to, to mix them both up, but I can't say that I like anything better than any other. I've written short stories, I've written poetry. Yeah. It's all writing to me. Do you find I'm now I'm getting really like in the weeds, <laughs> but do you do you find that um let's say you're doing a a picture book and a and a uh children's or a, a young adult novel do you find that thematically you have echoing themes going across crossing the stream between the two projects or are they just two separate projects and you just need that kind of like i sometimes i'll be reading four books at a time that have mm -hmm. nothing to do with each other mm -hmm. and i kind of need that yeah i don't know i have a pinball brain so me, me too i mean i think that's much more i think the only crossing might be in language so if I am writing a picture book, I'm being very strict about, you know, I, I write lots of stuff, but then I pull it way in. And then when I turn to the novel, I think, I don't need all these adverbs. Let the verb carry the mm. sentence. So it's more writing techniques that might go back and forth or might inform one, one piece or the other rather than themes. That um, is cool. Okay, so my mind just, my, my brain just popped off my butt. That is awesome. Very, <laughs> very cool. I love hearing about people's processes. So mm -hmm. thanks yeah. for indulging me. Oh, I love talking about it. My favorite <laughs> thing to talk about. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe that'll be our, our swing into talking about your memoir, mm -hmm. because that's like a whole other thing. And this is the first time you've written a memoir, right? Correct. Correct. And so how old were you when you started the memoir? Um, I probably started it 10 years ago. So mid 60s, 62, 64. I started interviewing my mother much earlier than that, um, probably about 30 years ago. Oh. But I never thought of doing anything with it. I just thought, oh, well, you know, I should I should get mommy's story, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I had been doing that. And some of that was driven by the fact that I wrote a historical fiction, a novel called Counting on Grace. And it's about a little girl who works in a um, mill, a textile mill in Vermont in 1910. And her photograph was taken by the great child labor photographer, Lewis Hine. So I just went, I looked at her photograph, and I decided I'm writing a book, but I'm not using her story. I'm creating my own story. Wow. But after I finished the book, it just felt unfair not to know what happened to her. So I finished the book. It went into copy editing, and I said to my editor, hold the presses. I'm going to see if I can find her. So I did. I found her, she was dead, but I met her granddaughter or great-granddaughter. They didn't know her picture had been taken. It was an amazing side trip oh, I took. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was really moving. And yeah. then I came out of that, and I thought, wait a minute. I know more about this little girl, Addie Card, than I know about my own mother. Mm. I don't know about her childhood. Yes, yeah, she grew up in Gibraltar, but what was that about? So that really spurred more of the interviewing. I ended up videotaping my mother twice. Once with her, she grew up in Gibraltar. She was born in 1926. Right at the, at the age of 10, she witnessed the first battles of the Spanish Civil War from the roof of her parents' building. 
she went from one war to another and she was in a british crown colony which is what gibraltar is it's sort of a still a territory of britain and i put a photograph album in her lap that her father had made and i videotaped her and then i would get the camera to focus in on the picture and there all sorts of things came out all oh my sorts goodness, of memories I bet. it was just like a well of deeply realized rich specific stories she was a good storyteller and she had been so quiet through the whole marriage mm-hmm. uh that it was you know it was sort of like i knew i was getting to know another mother oh my goodness so how how old would you estimate you were when you decided to do this with your mom this videotaping of her with the um my late 40s mm. 50s Mm. probably the videotaping late 50s and um when i did the first one on gibraltar then i did another one on world war ii what was it like to be bombed mommy what was it like to have a miscarriage in the middle of a bombing raid how did you you know all those sorts of details and again somebody had finally given her the microphone you know she'd been married to my father a famous journalist who had the microphone for the whole Mm. marriage Mm -hmm. Um, and it was my, I'm the only girl. My mother was a Catholic, British Catholic, which is very odd. She had, she conceived 12 children. She had six, seven of us. I have a five brothers and one little sister who died at three months Mm. and she had miscarriages, the other, the other five. So it was just... (laughs) an amazing kind of experience in that she was juggling all these children. My father traveled because he was a reporter for the Herald Tribune syndicate. And he worked with his brother, his older brother, and they both agreed that three months of the year, each of them had to be out of the country. So daddy would go to the Middle East or Moscow or you know South America and be gone. And my mother had to run the whole show at home. And it really became too much in many ways. So for my childhood, my mother sadly was an alcoholic. So I really didn't have a mother. She kept us safe, I would say. But she was British. She was removed, distant, had married at 18, didn't really know herself that well, and then was hit with this. She married a man that she didn't really know was going to be famous, of course, even though he was related to the Roosevelts. She arrived in this country at 18, and the first night out, she told me she sat next to Felix Frankfurter, the Supreme Court Justice, at a dinner party. I read that, and I was that I just to imagine that I think of myself at 18 and how completely naive I was and how much I didn't know about myself, much less the world and exactly. think about that and there was a big age difference between your mom yeah. and your dad as well 12 right years. 12 my years my mother was 18 when she married my father was 30 and wow. they met when she was 16 and five at a at a baronial castle in yorkshire england and my father was in the british army because the american army had turned him down so he enlisted with the british and the king's royal rifle corps regiment and he came to a party at the castle the last night before the castle was requisitioned by the Royal Canadian Air Force. And the owner of the castle was my mother's best friend's father. So 
mummy was there for the summer. And and five days later, he wrote a letter to his parents saying, I've met the woman I'm going to marry. I know you I know I've said this before, but this time it's really true. And I was stunning. He did, she was 16. So she must have exuded a real sense of maturity, which mm-hmm. she had and he did not have that much. So she he kind of realized he could depend on her. And that carried through the marriage because he left her to go on these reporting trips. That's just, God, to think about how much of her lifetime was spent being pregnant. Exactly. And alone. And alone. In, not alone in the sense of, of, I'm sure she's surrounded by kids, right? It's, it's so interesting how they talk about um, loneliness is not about being alone it's being yeah. about it's about feeling alone in the midst of a in crowd. the midst of a crowd and exactly. how dangerous that is for us for our health for our mental health exactly exactly yeah so she turned to the bottle and she had a good friend and they used to work at the emergency room in children's hospital i think it was and every this woman would bring her back to her house in the afternoon and at five o'clock she'd say let's have some let's have a drink and my mother told me when she first heard this she was shocked you know you're not supposed to drink before the sun goes down or you Mm. know over the yard arm or whatever that line is but she got used to it and it it showed it showed her that she could medicate herself it she thought you know uh, tamp down the loneliness, distract herself from the loneliness. She was not, she never drank in public, never in front of us. She was a closeted alcoholic. So she had Coke, a Coca-Cola with vodka in it. Which it struck smell. me in reading the book and how how mystifying her moods must have been for you Gosh. because you couldn't see Mm-mm. what was happening or what was really happening to me. And then on top of it, you're a kid, so you can't possibly at that age have understood the burden she was carrying. Not at all. From all the loss in her life. And so then that leaves you, I I mean, we make decisions, don't we, about ourselves based on our childish brains and how they function and and like wow yeah i i think that for me what it meant was i took on much to an adult to adult a role in the household and my mother not only allowed it but in some ways encouraged it because she knew she had to lock herself in that bedroom a lot of the time so i was the uh kind of caretaker for my younger brothers at one point with my brother Nick, who's, I don't know, I can't quite remember, but about seven or 10 years younger, I was, that there were maids in the house when we always had staff and they were on the third floor and they couldn't hear him crying. So I would go when he cried in the middle of the night and I would change the diaper or comfort him. Or And you were and, how old at this point? I was probably about 11. 11. And then my baby sister was born and I was in heaven because I had all these brothers 
Mm-hmm. And uh, she was born in January of 63, so I was uh, about 13. And she died in March. And I, t- I changed her diaper the day she died and went and it off to death, school. it was crib death, basically, It was right? crib death, sudden infant death. I just yeah. can't believe that we still haven't figured it out. I have a, I a friend whose grandchild recently Mine, passed. Me too. Yeah, I've Horrible. had the same. Uh, my my cousin's daughter had, mm. had that situation. Mm. So, you know, on top of everything else, she's losing babies. She's you know, and yet she continues to be a devout Catholic. Yeah. Um, we had fish on Fridays. We went to confession. We went to the three hour vigil on Good Friday, you know, etc. So my father was not Catholic, but my mother brought us all up Catholic, which he'd agreed to. Yeah. So, but it did make me, uh, it did make me really feel like I had to be in charge, particularly when my older two brothers went to boarding school, which they did in 1962. So there I was, you know, 14 or whatever I went in they went even earlier actually they went in about 1960 so I had about two or three years at home where I was the oldest child in the house and she just was struggling and you know I I think about your story and and that you know you had staff you guys went to Mm -hmm. boarding school you yeah we were from the outside I imagine people would look at your life and think you guys had it made that exactly. there wasn't a problem in the world. There couldn't possibly be a problem in the world for your family based mm-hmm. on your political connections mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. wealth. Um, yeah. You know, it just goes to show that <laughs> we all have struggles. It's a human condition. Yeah. And you, you don't know what goes on behind the closed doors, no matter what it looks like outside. Yeah. Yeah was part of why I wrote the book in a way because I thought this is we do you know a lot of children suffer from too rich parents too absent parents to you know of course it's different than being poverty stricken and not knowing having no food security we had that mm-hmm. we had a shelter over our heads we had but we didn't have the emotional component and my father was also very distant. He was brought up in Connecticut. He was sort of an old wasp type. I, I say that when I kissed daddy goodbye to go somewhere, the hair on his cheek electrified the hair on my cheek. That's how close, you know, we brushed cheeks and that was it. Neither of my parents ever said, I love you, ever. It was too an emotional thing to say. Wow. Mommy called me love. And I knew she loved me, and I know my father did. But in a funny way, there were so many of us that we used to laugh that Daddy would look up from his chair in the corner of the living room trying to remember which one just went through or what my name was. Or he kind of knew me because I was the only girl, but he never birthdays, never remembered any of that, never that he was too focused, and he had a really tough job. He had to be very focused. Mm -hmm. Um, He had to produce a column three days a week huge yeah and he had a very overbearing brother older brother uncle joe had many wonderful qualities but he was not easy to work with and that i think and they were keeping secrets you know the title of the book is daughter of spies wartime secrets family lies Mm -hmm. and really 
the family lies were what you didn't say to each other. Part of what I'm, my premise is that my parents both, my mother was a um, decoding agent for MI5, the Secret Service in Britain. And at the age of 17, she was hired and she signed the official Secrets Act. My father worked with the Office of Special Services, OSS, and he dropped behind enemy lines into France right after D-Day to liaison with the resistance. So she couldn't tell him what she did. He couldn't tell her where he was jumping. And that was a habit of secrecy that just extended into the family. So her drinking was secret. She kept it from him, she thought. Her mood changed so we could always tell. Mm-hmm. My Uncle Joe was a secret homosexual. He was caught in bed with a man in Moscow and harassed by the Soviets as well as by the CIA and uh, the FBI who found who he had to confess to. So there was a lot of this murky, ominous world that we grew up in. All of my father's best friends were CIA agents, all of them. He had other friends too, but they all, when you go down the list, it was, it's shocking to see how they all, and many of them had come out of the war, had come out of the OSS like daddy and congregated in Washington because the excitement of the war, they didn't want to go back to being lawyers or doctors or whatever they wanted. They wanted that sense of excitement. So a lot of them became spies. Just an eerie Which makes world. me think about the, uh, the whole thing of, of you writing a memoir to mm-hmm. talk about this mm-hmm. um it do you do you feel like it's your way of of coming out from under keeping yes. secrets yes and- absolutely i had a therapist once who said you are a pariah in the family and i said why and he said you spill the secrets and that was before i wrote this that was in fiction you mm-hmm. know i did i wrote a, a novel called knock knock who's there and it was about a um uh, two boys whose father dies of a blood disease, and after he just dies, they discover their mother's an alcoholic. My father mm-hmm. died of leukemia. I'm surrounded by brothers, you know. And when I published it, my brothers were terrified that mommy would go back to drinking because she had gotten sober by then. Mm-hmm. But we had a very, very, very tough conversation around that book, as you can imagine. I mean, yeah. she felt exposed, and I said I had to write it. So you talk about that in in this mm-hmm. memoir and I, if I'm remembering correctly it actually ended up helping you to heal your relationship with your mom didn't it It did it did help to heal it she um was in AA at the time and she uh, announced at a meeting that her daughter had written a book about her drinking and she said I'm writing her a letter about how I feel about it. And one person asked her, well, where does your daughter live? This was in Washington. She said, you know, does your daughter live in Hong Kong or Japan or China? Where, you know, mommy said, no, she lives in New York. And they said, well, why don't you go see her? Of course, we hadn't had those kinds of conversations. And when she called me and said, I'm coming up to see you to discuss the book, I said, do you have to? Could you write me a letter? (laughs) I mean, I was scared of that conversation. Oh my gosh, I can only imagine. And I imagine I the two, thumping. Can you imagine your oh, heart? And yes. 
I had two young children at that point, and there was no question that she was going to see the grandchildren. This was entirely about this. A friend of mine, my editor, lent me her apartment, and we met there. And we had a very, you know, a long truth session. And I learned a lot about how hard it was for her. And, for example, she said to me, you realize... Um, that time that you came down and I, the only time in the three years of my father's illness that my mother got really drunk, the only time, the rest of the time she stayed off the bottle, which was pretty amazing because she was back and forth to National Institutes of Health. Daddy was up and down with the leukemia. And she said, the only time I got really drunk was when I told him one morning that I had the stomach flu and I wasn't feeling well. And he said, well, thank God you don't have leukemia. So there was no empathy there, and she just went and got the bottle. And you know, I had I'd be I had sympathy for all of this. It was he was not I loved him, but he was not an easy man to live with, and he was very closed off in many ways. So that moment of us talking about that, at one point she said, "I understood why you wrote the book. Why did you have to publish it?" And I started to answer, and she said, "Never mind. I was married to a writer." I understand. So, you know, it, it was, so when it came to writing this book, I, I told her that I was thinking of doing this as she was headed into dementia. She was had dementia the last four years of her life. And she said, oh, you're writing my autobiography. And I didn't, I didn't, change, I didn't say, you have to write it. That's your autobiography. I didn't say that. I just said, I'm telling your story, mommy. It never got told. And that's what I feel about it. So, and how did she? What did she say when was she? Was she? It sounds like she, there might have been a little pride. Yes, with in her. her, you mean? Yeah, in her. Yeah, I I think she was very. You know, I think she was very glad that I was bringing out what her life had been. You know, she grows up in Gibraltar. Her older brother goes off to boarding school she's basically alone here we go then she goes to boarding school she meets her best friend and has a best friend there then she goes to uh meets daddy at 16 but she was she tested high enough in the boarding school to be able to apply to oxford which mm -hmm. shows you again mm -hmm. and she uh her parents said no you have to do war work so she was sent to a secretarial school. And from there, in March of 1943, she was 17. On her 17th birthday, she got a job in what she thought was the passport office. But she was taken upstairs, sat down by an ad colonel or some somebody in the Navy, I can't remember his name, and said, sign the Official Secrets Act. She said to work in the passport office? He said, you're not working in the passport office. You're working in the secret service with us. 17. The next day, she came out at the Queen Charlotte Ball, which was a debutante party that was quite famous in, in London. So, and then, you know, worked there right till when she married my father in June of 44, in the middle of a, basically a bombing raid, a V-1 rocket raid. She gets pregnant. He goes to France. He jumps into France. She loses the baby. At, again, we're, we're now 18. He comes out after three months. 
They're together for two weeks. She gets pregnant again. And he goes back into France. He jumps again, comes back out. And she gets, in order to get to America before the baby was six months in utero, you had to leave England or you'd be quarantined there for two years. That's why she had to get on that convoy, on that ship. Mm. So she's pregnant with my brother, Joe. She gets on a ship. She goes out in convoy across the North Atlantic, dodging the U-boats. There are seven women in in a bunk room and one eight-year-old boy. He has German measles. He gives it to her. She's pregnant. He gives her German measles. She doesn't even know how dangerous that is. She never tells anybody and lands in New York January 4th, 1945, not knowing a single soul, 18 pregnant. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. The courage of her. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's all what I learned when I wrote the memoir. All amazing. You know, we, (laughs) we, I'm going to, I'm going to speak for other people here, I guess, in saying this, but I do believe that we don't think of our parents as people, full-fledged people who, (laughs) right? Yeah. Incredible. And I have a, I wonder for you doing this memoir later in life after you've healed a relationship mm-hmm. with your mom what have you learned about yourself mm-hmm. in doing this that's a really good question i i say about memoir the difference the real difference between memoir and fiction is memoir teaches you even more about yourself as the writer what you focus on, what you don't want to look at, what you force, you know. So, for example, in the first part of the book, I decided I couldn't just tell my parents' story because I wasn't there. And it was too, it, it fell flat on the page because it was just me telling what had happened. So I created what I call a braided narrative. Which so I love. I, did you? Yes, yeah. very much so. So I'll let you explain what that is. Sorry. Yeah, so I go... <laughs> That's all right. So I, I, when I really started writing, my mother was 82 and she was headed, she was losing her mind. She was getting dementia. We don't know whether it was Alzheimer's or alcohol dementia because she did drink from the age of 16 to 51 and those brain cells don't come back. But um, I just decided that I would start moving back and forth in the part one of the book I moved from taking care of her, having conversations with her, talking to the caregivers, talking to the doctor, to you know, her walking into uh, MI5 at the age of 17. So I went back and forth because her story came more alive when you knew, when the reader knew me telling it in that present moment. But what was fascinating to me in looking back was when I hit part two, which was my childhood in Washington, growing up as a child of these two parents who had met and loved each other during the war and so on, courted during the war, I didn't want my mother in there at all. I did not want to go back and forth. Mm. I said, it's time for this little girl to get full coverage on the stage, get the spotlight. I don't want the reader empathizing with her because it was no fun growing up 
as the child of an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how deeply rooted those feelings were of I've been, you know, I'd been through a 12 step program, I'd been in therapy, but still, still the sadness and abandonment of that little girl was what came up to me in writing part two. And so I gave little Elizabeth the full stage, the spotlight. I'd only talked about that childhood through my experience. Then when I came to part three, it was like I had cleared that out of my system. I had come to realize how brave my mother had been, how stalwart, and in the years from when she stopped drinking to dementia was 30 years. She stopped at 51 and she started to go into dementia at 82. She had supported, helped me. I'd taken, helped me through a very difficult divorce, you know, gotten to know my children, become a grandmother who was present, et cetera, et cetera. So I was so sad when I began to lose her again with it's the a dementia. Hard process, yeah. It's so hard. My and it father triggered, has dementia. I, really? Yeah. yeah. So you know, yeah. it triggered a childhood. And some odd childhood feelings. For example, when I saw her impatient or snapping at the caregivers, I felt like I had to rush and protect them the way I had protected my little brothers mm-hmm. when she, you know, when she had been drinking. So it it resembled in a funny way, or it triggered the childhood emotions of her drinking. But it also what it did for me was it was a way to reach her during the dementia. I would read her letters Daddy had written to his parents about what a beautiful woman she was or what young girl she was. And she would laugh and say, I never read those letters. Or I would, she would say to me, here's a perfect example. She would say to me, I can't read anymore. There's something wrong with my eyes. We had them checked. There was nothing wrong with her eyes. She couldn't remember the end of the sentence by mm-hmm. the begin. you know, by the time she got to it. Couldn't yeah. remember the beginning of the sentence. And so at one point I went down in the basement and I found all these documents from Gibraltar. And one of them was a military commission for my great uncle, her uncle. I handed it to her. I said, mommy, read this, it's so funny. And it had all the S's and kind of strange things. She read the whole thing from beginning to end. Unbelievable, isn't that crazy? It is a crazy disease. It's a crazy disease, you never know. You never know, she could still play bridge. Yeah, How the moments could she remember really whose points were in which cards. I could not believe she could. And I said that to her, and she said, Well, it's a habit. Well, it isn't, it's a memory. The wow. things that she could do. I sent a woman in at one point to just, you know, get her story and, and be with her, sit with her companion, because I did not live in Washington. I mm-hmm. went down all the time. But I, and this woman wrote me, and she said, I gave your mother one long word. And I asked her to get all the words out of those letters that she could. She said she got 54 words. What? That I have never seen anything like this. That is unbelievable. Yeah. It was really incredible. And the videotapes were terrific. I played her music from World War II. Vera Lynn, you know, mm-hmm. all those. Music sort of has a songs. way of cutting through, doesn't it? It does. It yeah. Does. Yeah. yeah it's great. I read her the letters, I got her to read documents, and then what I found with the videos is that she would watch them and she would come up with another detail. Mm. Oh, I remember that. We were standing on the balcony of the Ritz 
during the honeymoon and the B-1 rockets were coming over into Green Park and I turned around and your father was hiding under the stairs and I wore a black dress. You know, he was a soldier, she said, but I'm the one out there looking at the V1. So, <laughs> and of course, she'd lived in London where they were, where they were shooting the V1s. He was training up in north part of England, so he'd never experienced the rockets before. So wow. those details would still come out. And it was a wonderful thing to do. I was so lucky that I'd done the videotapes before she got to mention because she she watched those hour after hour. She loved to watch those videotapes. And when we ran out of conversation, we put them back on again. Hmm. It was fascinating. The other thing I did was I traveled to all the places she'd lived. So when I went to Gibraltar, um, I found you know her childhood house, this place she stood when her great-grandfather was knighted by the Duke of Cornwall, blah, blah, blah. And she... I made a picture book for her. She picked that up three times a day because wow. she didn't remember reading it, you know, looking, and there was no words. It was just pictures. And it was like giving her a path back into that childhood where she had left so much behind. Yeah, it was, I was lucky there that I'd figured some of those things out. Yeah, boy. It sounds like it's just been an incredible healing process for you it has incredible and particularly the very end that postcard she threw me from the grave as i like to say oh. where after she died i went through her papers and my mother had been very instrumental in bringing hospice to america because it was an english program and she really believed in it and she gave a speech to a group of people about hospice and she told her own story. Now, she never said in that speech, I was drunk, but she said, I totally fell apart after my husband died and what that felt like and so on. And I came away saying, not only did she read, re, sorry, lead a self-examined life, which I didn't think she had, but she was also a great storyteller. So the notes for that speech just gave me a whole nother dimension of my mother that I had not realized. So yes, it was a, thank you for saying that. It was a real healing process. And I don't think writing memoir always is. It can really expose some dark, dark things that are hard to heal, but it did for me. Yeah. Where, yeah. where do you see yourself going next with your, with your <laughs> writing? Um, like where has it left you now? Like as far mm. as, I guess, self-exploration, you know, do you feel like you feel like that's that's done now and you can move forward? And Yeah, I feel that it's a closure. I feel it's a present, a gift to her because her story is told. I got the microphone away from my father and, you know, I got it in front of her. I came away saying... I understand why she turned to drink. You know, you're never supposed to have an excuse, but my Lord, she had a lot of them. You know, a lot of a lot of reasons to. I think she was, as we discussed, far lonelier than I ever knew as a child. Um, so I've come full circle. I don't intend to write another memoir. I have just finished a novel. Um, 
it's I, I have a sort of what they call a children's classic. I have a middle grade fantasy series called The Castle in the Attic and The Battle for the Castle. And I've just written a prequel, which I'm calling for the moment, The Cradle in the Castle. So that feels wonderful. I can see there's possibly another book in that series. I've had two readers who I trust read it. And one of them who normally is very good at editing and stuff she said i lost all critical distance she said i just was swallowed by the story which is what a writer wants to hear mm-hmm. and i think it particular i think the memoir deepened this book because it's a time travel book which the other two are also but i set it on the northeast coast of england kind of in honor you know in the castle has always been in england but i set it very specifically in a place And I opened the book in 1943, Hmm. when everybody thought the Germans were going to invade England in exactly that area. And so that history in the war informs the entire book, informs what the boy decides to do, why he runs away from his present time into the past, etc. So if there is that English side of me, I'm I'm in fact half English, half British. So it really... uh, it's informed this book more than any other. Wow. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Now, the the book the book is out and available now, right? October 25th. October so. 25th. So by the time people hear this, it will be be available. And it's Daughter of Spies, Wartime Secrets, Family Lies, right? Correct, yeah. Okay, great. And I will have in the show notes, I'll have a link to where people can find it and learn more about you. Is there anything else coming up that you're excited? I mean, you've got the prequel for the novel. Anything else coming up? I'm I'm excited about the tour for this book because it's really, I'm getting to speak at politics and prose in Washington. So that's, you know, dead center. (laughs) Wow. Back to the back to where it all started. Oh, my goodness. And so and interesting, too, that book tours are happening again, right? They are. We hope. Yeah. 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 I'm also going I'm sort of I'm also going to Middletown, Connecticut, where my mother and father are buried and my father's entire family comes from Middletown. So I'm speaking at a bookstore, but in conjunction with the Middlesex County Historical Society. Wow. So this, the uh, conversationalist is going to take me back. The other fun thing I'm doing is I'm speaking here at a private New York library, but it's open to the public and there is a Zoom. Um, and it's a conversation with Tim Gunn. So do you know who Tim Gunn yeah, is? Yeah, yeah. Right. How did that happen? That's very funny. He lives <laughs> down the block from me, and we met at a diner. And I I say to people, I said to my favorite, my favorite waitress in the diner, Stephanie, I said, who is that man who comes in here dressed to the nines every you know week? <laughs> she said, well, that's Tim Gunn. And I said, well, who's Tim Gunn? She just roared. She couldn't believe it because I had never watched Project <laughs> Runway or anything. He loves that I've never watched any of that. But the interesting I bet. thing. I bet that's refreshing for that. him. Yeah. yeah. But the interesting thing is we grew up the same way. His father was number two to J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI. Wow. His mother was a librarian at the CIA. 
He went to the same elementary school as I did. He's younger. He was in my younger brother's class. He grew up, you know, five blocks from me. And we have, we share this same murky underworld. And can you imagine what his father was doing and carrying, what secrets he had? Oh, my goodness. And wow. we like to say that his father probably wrote the report on my uncle when my uncle was discovered in bed with the man in Moscow, the mm, KGB wow. set him up in a compromise. So that <sighs> there's lots to talk about there. Wow, yeah. So when is that happening? And that is, is that a link that, if, yeah. it, if it's already happened by the time this comes out, can will, will it still be yeah, something be people soon. could watch? Yeah, it's November 14th. So it's quite far after this book comes out. And it's at six o'clock. And people can, there's a live link for you to attend, or there's a Zoom link. Okay. I so can send you those. I think you. that that will still be upcoming, because I'm looking at putting this out for you early. Uh, Great. Early November. Perfect. So that should work out really well. And uh, I'll be sure to put that in the show notes for anybody yeah. who wants to go watch that. That's very exciting. So, well, yeah, I, will, what a I will do my best to be there. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I will. Does it help if I send you the links for that? It would be yeah. very helpful. Yeah. Okay. So Terrific. I can just respond to one of the emails you sent me, right? Yeah, that sounds okay. great. Any any links you think would be helpful would okay. be. I'd be happy to include them. So. Okay. Great. Oh my goodness, Elizabeth, it's been a complete and total pleasure to talk to you to hear your story. Thank you for for being so open not only in this conversation, but in, in the book, I was very moved by your story, your mother's story. Mm, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, it means a lot to me to be able to talk to someone who understands the way you do. Yeah. So, I, I, I'm just always it. hopeful for us as humans that mm -hmm. healing is always possible. Yeah, it is. At any age. It's, it is. And this book definitely is healing, as you pointed out. Yeah. Yeah, I feel at peace now with my mother. I told her story. We did the hard work and we got to the end. And so the closure when she died was so much more, um, wasn't easy, but it was more satisfying and authentic when I lost her. So I think that's really important to yeah yeah i'm it feels strange to say i'm happy for you mm, no no but, I, I think that's appropriate yeah good yeah, yeah. i'm happy for me too <laughs> thank you great again to, great to meet you great to meet you too take care well there you have it i'm i'm so thrilled that I had the chance to sit and talk to Elizabeth. I found her story to be very hopeful. And her book was a really good read, by the way. So I recommend it if you're looking for some holiday reading. And it's hot off the presses. I It was just released on October 25th. So she's in the middle of a book tour and has some events coming up in the next couple of weeks that you might be able to attend if you're in Washington, D.C. or Middlesex, Connecticut. Oh, and this is cool. She will make an appearance with Tim Gunn of Project Runway fame that will be live in New York on November 14th. 
but that's also going to be available to watch online if you're not in New York. How cool is that? I will have information about her book tour in the show notes for this episode. You can go to latebloomerliving.com forward slash podcast and click on the link for episode 116. If you want to have a copy of her book, I will have a link for that also. Hey, before I go, I would be totally remiss if I didn't mention to you that next Tuesday, November 8th at 9 o'clock Eastern time is the next gathering for the Midlife Uprising community. That's a group of women who are ready to make waves as we age. And man, we have fun in there. Um, You can check it out at midlifeuprising.com. I hope to see you there. Thank you. Really, truly thank you for listening. It's November. I'm feeling very grateful. I feel grateful lots of times, but you... Your time is valuable, and here you are at the end, still listening. Wow, you're blowing me away. Thank you. I hope you have a fantastic week. Stay safe and well. Talk soon.